Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Isaiah 57, please. Isaiah 57. Whew, it's roasty. We're going to look at verses 14 to the end of the chapter, verse 21, Isaiah 57. Before we begin and get to the passage, let me unfold for you a scenario that really plays out on any given Sunday in any given church. It goes kind of like this. Hey, brother, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Blessed by the Lord. Blessed. How are you, pastor? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for asking. The Lord has been good. Do you know how we tend to keep it safe? You know how we tend to keep it shallow? You know how we tend to lie to one another? We put on a mask, metaphorically speaking, of course. We put on a mask, we play the hypocrite, and in doing so, we end up destroying ourselves, we diminish the gospel, and we defile our witness. Why is it that Christians have this idea that our lives need to look perfect? Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? We could be dying on the inside, but we keep our smiles on the outside. We've been conditioned to do this. We've been conditioned to wear metaphorical masks, especially when we walk into this building. It's part of our conditioning. We want to have these perfect lies. I once even had a pastor friend tell me, he says, pastors especially need to hide their emotions. We need to present ourselves as those who have it all together, as those who live holy, righteous, and well, perfect lives. I think such thinking is actually disastrous for the church and for our witness. Even the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, how he despaired of life. When was the last time you heard a pastor or elder say that they despaired of life? I can only imagine if I actually announced that I'm despairing of life from the pulpit that this collective gasp would echo from behind your masks and you would all begin questioning whether I should be a pastor or not. But the Apostle Paul, the one we exalt as being the perfect example, who is not, by the way, despaired of life. Why is this? Why is this that we are so afraid to be honest with one another? Why are we so afraid to be honest about our sin? our brokenness, our hurt, and our sadness? Why is this fear existing in us? Why do we keep this distance from one another? Let me tell you, we were distant from one another before social distancing happened. Social distancing has just made it a whole lot worse. We keep our distance from one another. But I'm here to tell you this morning from God's word that church is not for those who have it together. If you have it together, you're in the wrong place. Church is for the brokenhearted. Church is for those who are not fine. 
Jesus' invitation is always to the broken, to the lowly, to the poor, to the needy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's remarkable how countercultural Jesus' beatitudes are, how counter-church culture Jesus' beatitudes are. The Lord doesn't make promises of his presence and covenant love to those who have it together, to those who are fine, to those who can smile. He makes his promises to those who are brokenhearted. He makes his promises to those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. So let me ask you this. Why would we as God's people ever want to put on the front, ever want to put on the mask of our lives actually being together when the Lord himself invites those who are weary, invites those who are heavy laden, invites those who are broken? In Isaiah 57, the Lord offers three promises to those who are contrite, and lowly of spirit. We're going to look at those this morning. Three promises. The first one in verses 14 to 15, the Lord promises revival to those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. The second thing, the Lord promises mercy in verses 16 to 19 to those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. And the last, the Lord promises peace in verses 19 to 21 to those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. The Lord promises revival, mercy, and peace to the brokenhearted. Jesus' invitation to rest is for the weary and heavy laden. So the point this morning is this. We are to be the brokenhearted, and we are to love the brokenhearted. We are to be the brokenhearted and to love the brokenhearted. We need to cast off our masks, and we need to get real with one another and it begins by getting real with ourselves and with our God. Let's begin the first promise, verses 14 to 15. The Lord promises revival to the contrite and lowly. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite now before we get too far ahead we need to define the lowly and the contrite what does it mean to be contrite and lowly of spirit what are the marks of contrition what are the characteristics of being lowly of spirit if we could sum it up in one word, I think it is this, humility. Those who are contrite and lowly of spirit are those who are humble. They're marked by humility. So then the question arises, how do we become humble? Because humility is a supernatural work of the spirit in our hearts and our minds. But there are some things we can do to foster humility. There's some things we can do to help plant and fertilize the soil so humility begins to grow in our hearts and our lives. The first, just three brief things. The first thing is we need to have a deeper awareness of God's greatness and holiness. The church in general has lost any sense of God's holiness, that he is holy and righteous and just. 
we need to recover that greatness and holiness. We need to see him for how he truly is revealed in his word. Secondly, we need to see ourselves for who we truly are in light of God's word. Because we've lost that vision of God's holiness and greatness, we really tend to have a pretty low view of our sin. Yeah, I'm a sinner, we say flippantly and go on without realizing that the entire wrath of God would have been poured out upon us if it were not for Christ because of our little lie, little sin, little this or little that. We are not just people who sin. We are by very nature sinners. The third thing we need to realize is that the mercy of God is for sinners. That mercy of God is for sinful, broken, rebellious creatures, people who spit literally in the face of God and continue to do so every single day. That mercy and that grace is for us. When we understand these three, three things, we begin to breathe in the gospel. We long for the gospel. We want the good news of Jesus Christ. And that begins to plant and work and sow the seed of humility in our lives. It is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for the many. And brothers and sisters, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the many. And all who believe in him shall be saved and shall have eternal life, which begins now. This is the mercy of God, free, unmerited, undeserved mercy. See, those who see God for who he truly is, those who see themselves for who they truly are, and those who grasp the beauty of the gospel for what it is, those are the ones whom the Spirit molds and shapes in humility. The gospel of our Lord Jesus works humility in all who believe, and pride is antithetical to the gospel. But there's an aspect that flows out of that humility that we also must have for those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. It is the spirit of neediness. If you are humble, you are needy. And we need to be a needy people. Humility helps us see our need, to see that we are desperately dependent upon the Lord. Remember the invitation of Isaiah 55? It was an invitation to the needy. The hungry, the thirsty, those who are contrite in spirit and lowly in heart, they are the needy. Okay. So those who are contrite and lowly are those who are humble and needy. And it is to be humble and needy, it is to the humble and needy that the Lord offers revival. Look specifically at verse 15. I dwell in the high and holy place. So the Lord is there, but also he dwells with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit, and he dwells with purpose to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. The Lord is with the brokenhearted. The Lord is with the contrite and lowly in spirit. He's with them to revive them. Scripture says that he revives the spirit of the lowly. He revives the heart of the contrite. Psalm 51 Verses 7 to 12 give us another picture of how the Lord revives the heart of the broken. David confessing his sin of murder and adultery. David cries out for forgiveness and renewal. 
purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, O God. Blot out all my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God. Do not hear the passion David has and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with the willing spirit. What David is crying out for, resting in, is that the Lord revives the brokenhearted. David, confronted by Nathan, and he repents. And remarkably, and I think we don't grasp this fully, the Lord has compassion on him. David asked the Lord to hide his face from his sins, to blot out all his iniquities, and he was an adulterous murderer. If you want to see a clear picture of God's unmerited grace, look to David. Adulterer, murderer, forgiven. That is grace. That is the great salvation of our God. But David doesn't just ask for his sins to be forgiven. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't want fire assurance. He is pursuing joy. He is pursuing revival. He wants a right spirit. Keep me in your presence, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me, O Lord. Give me renewed joy. See, when we sin or when we face hardship, God's presence feels far removed. When we are going through trials, whether because of our sin or for some other unknown reason, maybe in the Lord's wisdom, we tend to feel the displeasure of the Lord. We tend to feel that God has abandoned us, forsaken us, forgotten us, that he's gone. We tend to feel that he has abandoned us. David felt it. David lost his sense of joy. He lost his sense of pleasure in the Lord. And he longs again for that pleasure. But he felt broken and needy enough to long for it. He was humbled. He saw his sin against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And in his humility, he saw his need. And that led him to cry out to God for revival. Brothers and sisters, do you see your need? Do you see your need? Are you walking humbly before the Lord? Are you of a contrite and lowly spirit? If you are, the Lord promises, I will revive the spirit of the lowly. I will revive the heart of the contrite. Brothers and sisters, our prayer must be, should always be, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I hope that is our prayer. The Lord's second promise is mercy. To those who cry out to God for that renewal, for that revival, the Lord promises his mercy to the lowly and contrite. Look at verses 16, the, the, just the beginning of verse 19. 
For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. The Lord promises mercy. He will not contend, fight, and wage war forever. He won't always be angry. But let me pause for a moment and make clear, the Lord is angry. The Lord does get angry. We don't like to think of God as an angry God, but we must think of him as an angry God if he is to be holy and righteous and just. He hates sin. He hates rebels. He hates those who craft idols in their hearts or in real life. And the Lord has every single right to be angry because he alone is perfect in his justice and holiness and righteousness. He is the Holy One, and our sin is not only a violation of his covenant relationship with him, but it's also a violation of God's very character. It is an affront to him. In other words, he has every right to be angry. In his anger, he is just and perfect. But there's good news for us for those who rebel against him, for those who raise his anger, he promises that he will not be angry forever. He is angry for our sin. He hates those who backslide, those who rebel, those who run away from his covenant love. But in spite of those who turn away from the Lord, the Lord actually turns to us. That is the depth of his love. I've gone to it often, but once again, I believe Ezekiel 16 paints a beautiful, remarkable picture of the Lord's faithfulness and covenant love. He rescues Israel when she was despised, lowly, and insignificant. He poured out, he lavished upon her gifts. He gave her all good things, and over time, she was led astray. Over time, she prostituted herself. She chased after other gods, false gods, lesser gods. She rebelled against the Lord and rejected his love. But he remained faithful. He remembered his covenant. And in remembering his covenant, Ezekiel tells us he provided atonement for all her sins. This is the picture of God's covenant love the Lord overlooking our sin. This is mercy. Judgment is what we deserve, but grace and mercy is what we receive. The Lord has seen our ways, but he promises to heal us. He will lead and restore comfort to his people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus saves. The Lord saves. God saves. I pray that that moves you. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do we deserve the Lord's anger? Yes. Yes. But instead of pouring out his anger upon us, he has poured it out upon his beloved son. The Lord abounds in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Now he deals with us according to the righteousness of his son. He does not repay us according to our iniquities, and he never will. He has already dealt with our iniquities in the crucifixion. All of our sins that we have yet to commit are gone in his sight. He sees the blood-stained hands and feet inside of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. It is gone. No more removed, covered, cleansed, washed. The Lord promises mercy to the brokenhearted. And the Lord fulfills his promise through the cross of Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. And notice the first line of verse 19, creating the fruit of lips. Do you see that our healing, our salvation, actually results in fruit? We respond to the Lord's salvation with praise. The fruit of lips, as Paul would later say in Ephesians 2, these are the good works we are created to do. See, our salvation, the promised mercy of God, creates in us hearts that overflow with good works to God's glory and for the good of others. These good works are a response to the Lord's mercy. So brothers and sisters, the mercy of the Lord is for those who are brokenhearted. Jesus himself promises, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, God's kingdom awaits the brokenhearted. The third promise is that Lord gives us peace. Look at verses 19 and 21. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Well, if you see it, there's actually a twofold promise here. The first promise is peace for the lowly and contrite. To those who are far, to those who are near, the Lord promises their healing. The Lord promises them peace. And peace is possible only through that divine healing. It is salvation of the Lord that brings healing, nothing else, nothing less. So if you want true peace, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, it comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second promise here. Judgment and destruction are promised for the wicked. The wicked do not receive peace but unrest. They are like a tempest, like the tossing of the sea. There is no peace, no rest for the wicked. Imagine a life without sleep, without rest, with constant turmoil, without peace. 
the one theme that transcend, runs through all of Scripture is that there are only two types of people. There are the righteous, the ones who believe and trust in the Lord, who are redeemed by Him, and there are the wicked, the ones who remain in rebellion against the Lord. Salvation, peace, mercy, revival, promised to the righteous, and judgment, destruction, is promised to the wicked. Peace for one, destruction for the other. The Lord promises peace to the contrite and lowly of spirit. He promises peace to the brokenhearted. Back to Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to the cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Where's your place of refuge? No one who takes refuge in the Lord will be condemned. Those who are contrite and lowly in sport, spirit, the humble, the needy, will receive peace from the Lord, a peace that surpasses all understanding. So brothers and sisters, take refuge in him. Back to Psalm 34, says, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So brothers and sisters, do you want the Lord to be close? Do you want to experience the promise of his presence? Do you want that revival, that mercy, and that peace? Let me offer two brief applications in conclusion. First, we need to be a church of the brokenhearted. We ourselves need to be brokenhearted. We need to see that our sense of control and power and relevance are all facades. We don't really have control. We have very little power, and trust me, we are not as important as we think we are. So stop fronting. Stop playing. Stop pretending to be someone you're not. Don't put on a fake smile when you walk through these doors just because you've walked through these doors. Read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Who are the blessed ones? Jesus tells us. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the needy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are the ones the Lord promises revival, mercy, and peace. They are promised to the brokenhearted. Brothers and sisters, we need to be a church of the brokenhearted. But secondly, we need to be a church for the brokenhearted. We need to learn to love better. We need to learn to love the brokenhearted. This involves taking the time to listen and being present. We need to be a church that loves and listens to the brokenhearted. We need to be a church where the brokenhearted feel at home, where they feel a part of a family. I recently read a book by Henry Nguyen on leadership. Now, as a Catholic priest, I have some significant disagreements with him. 
but something struck me about the course of his life. Nguyen taught at some of the most prestigious schools in America, Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard. He was involved in the civil rights movement. He taught often in Latin America and throughout the world. But the remaining few years of his life, he made a significant change. He gave up all of that. And for the last 10 years of his life, he served as a pastor to disabled people at Le Arch Daybreak, a community for those with significant disabilities. And he describes it as the most important experience of his entire life. And this comes from someone who has traveled extensively, taught at some of the most prestigious schools, has written numerous books. He says that significant for him when he was working with the handicapped and disabled because he rediscovered his true identity. He grasped who he truly was. In his book, In the Name of Jesus, he writes this. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people force me to let go of my relevant self. That self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and force me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of my accomplishments. The unadorned self, the one who is completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, one who is brokenhearted and for the brokenhearted. It was in this midst of extreme brokenness where Nguyen learned who he truly was. And I believe for us, it is within the church, the body of Christ, when we are functioning as a family, as a community of the brokenhearted, where we will come to learn and to live and to be truly who we are, unadorned selves. Grace Chapel, we need to be a church for the brokenhearted. We need to be a church of the brokenhearted for the brokenhearted. Jesus, you call the weary and burdened to come to you. Father, you promise revival. You promise mercy and peace to those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. Help us to see our unadorned selves Help us to see ourselves as we truly are, as the humble, the needy, and the brokenhearted. And help us to see you as the one standing there with outstretched arms, offering us hope, peace, and joy. And Spirit, help us to become a brokenhearted people. And help us as a church to become a people for the brokenhearted. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who invites the brokenhearted to come, we pray. Amen.